Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. And so I decided to use those three months to make an experiment. As you said, you know, if all my pain comes from unmet expectations, let's see how life can be when you don't have any. So I'm not going to plan anything, which means that we will not have any attachment to how things will develop because I haven't really thought I would like things to happen in a specific way. Let's start from the assumption that how things happen is the best and only possible way. And let's see what happens. I was like, okay, universe, I trust you. Uh, Use me to make situations happen, make me meet the people that you think should be useful for my growth or for whatever, or who are the best ones that I that I need to meet in this moment. So, you know, it's just starting from a completely different framework. That was Roberta Musato, who is today's guest, talking about the approach she took to her three-month trip through Sri Lanka, South India, and Nepal. And really, this was a whole new approach to life for her at the time she was feeling sad, lonely, stuck, misunderstood by friends, and she felt her life was far from her expectations. And one of her core philosophies is that our pain comes from unmet expectations. And she wondered what life would be like if she planned nothing and surrendered to any attachment to how things turn out. And today you're going to hear how that turned out for her. And of course, we'll unpack the many lessons learned along the way that you can consider and perhaps apply to your own life and travels. So let's get into it, shall we? Buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Excited to have Roberta Musato here today. Her website is justhername.com. And that's where you can get all of the details for everything you need in terms of her book, Universe I Trust You, A Month in Sri Lanka, which we discussed today. And of course, the core philosophy around the book, allowing the universe to sort of take over and how that impacted her trip and the way she lived her life. And I have some thoughts at the end of this interview that I want to share, maybe a bit of a challenge, something to consider. It's something that you could do 
today or tomorrow. Very easy to do, but can have a huge impact. And I'll share that after the conversation. So please enjoy it right now. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you on the other side, my friend. The next station is Covent Garden. Roberta Musato, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for being here. I see a nice tropical looking background, but I'm not quite sure if that's (laughs) just your home and you have a painted wall or if you're somewhere exotic. Or maybe home is exotic. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. No, my, my house is actually very colorful. So every room has a different feature wall and orange is my color. So yes, there's, uh, there's generally this sort of color and I'm in my living room and I love plants. So you see plants, plants. And then there is a touch of exotic uh, from uh, Dahab in Egypt that I visited last year. Where, and where's the butterfly, home? that is one of the things. Where's home? Home is Treviso near Venice, so northern Italy. But I've been living in London for 17 years and I recently got the citizenship. So I guess I've got two homes. You got citizenship and then you left and went back to Italy. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> well, that's kind of the plan, you know. I was like, okay, let's get the citizenship because I don't know, you know, 17 years in London, I feel that my time is coming to an end. But I'm not, I don't know, I don't have a clear idea of what's coming next. I mean, in my vision board, I see a house near a seaside, but I don't know if it is the Spanish seaside, the Italian, the Greek, the Thai one. So I'm just waiting to to have more precise um, feelings about my future. So for this year, I'm just being a butterfly here and there. Well, it sounds like you've been a bit of a butterfly in, in some other parts of your life, which we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah, why are you back in Italy then? Like, why why there right now? No, so at the moment I'm in London. Okay? Or, oh, you're in London. I'm going now. to okay. Italy. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still in London, but every two to three months I go to Italy because I've got a ne- uh, niece and a nephew, and they are four and two years old. And honestly, they bring so much love in my in my life. They are the only children in the family, and plus my parents, you know, are aging. They are in their late seventies, and so given that I have the chance to work from everywhere, I just take my stuff and spend every time like two weeks in Italy. But at the moment, it's so it's it's mostly the family that is calling me back. It's not anything about Italy, um, about the lifestyle, especially not about the mentality. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Why do you say that? What 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 about the mentality? Is it that doesn't resonate with you? I mean, the mentality didn't resonate with me ever. That's why I left. I've always felt a citizen of the world, and I was born in this little village in um, in Treviso, in the north of Italy. Um, you know, it's 2,000 inhabitants, and there was a very narrow-minded mentality. I've always loved languages, I've always loved traveling, and I felt like that was not my place. Plus, when I started working in Italy, back then, that was 2002, so I don't know about the situation at the moment, but I don't think it has improved that much. It just seems like there are so few opportunities, and they're generally tied to whether you know someone. Um, there's not the meritocracy that you find in, in England, for example, or for example, in, uh, in America, the way I perceive it. And especially after COVID, I mean, COVID really hit badly Italians. Uh, the lockdown has been so extreme. And in my view, they've done such a psychological terrorism that 
the vibrations are so low. Whenever you talk with someone, it, it's like there is this general tendency to complain, to complain and not to be happy. And at the same time, not to expect much from the government, from what, what's available. So, yeah, I don't vibe at that level. It's really interesting to hear because, uh, you know, it's such a popular destination to visit. As, as Americans, let's say at least, and, and, you know, globally, the ideas of like, you know, Italy and France, sometimes as the traveler, it gets kind of romanticized, right? It's like the good food and the wine and, and sort of like the laid back lifestyle. And, you know, you're, you're growing up there in a small village. And so a traveler could walk into a small Italian village and be completely charmed. And you're seeing it from sort of the everyday real world kind of yeah, I mean, we're all individuals, right? So there's uh, people living in these villages, of course, that love love where they live and they're happy. It's just, you're absolutely. Talk- like, yeah, your, absolutely. Your my brother, my father absolutely love being in the village. And at the same time, I also want to say that I think Italy is an amazing destination to go on holiday. I just find it a bit expensive, especially in July and August, but it definitely has so much to offer, you know, in terms of food, history, art, um, architecture. The people are welcoming and funny, <laughs> open. So it's definitely a beautiful place to visit. Definitely. To live there is a different story for me. Right. I always wonder why you guys don't sit down when you're drinking coffee. I remember like trying to find some coffee and I always go into these espresso bars in Rome, at least. There's barely any place to sit. People are like coming in and out. They're standing there. They're like, drink their coffee. They leave. Like everybody's running around just like, maybe that's just a rush hour yeah, thing. I would say I that know. that's typical... Yeah, I think that that's typical of, you know, you just reminded me of a scene from Eat, Pray, Love, where she tries to learn how to order a cappuccino, you know, in this super busy Rome cafe. I can tell you that where I'm from, because it's a, you know, people really take their time and sit down al fresco in the square, soaking in the sun. So I think it's more something of busy cities like Milan and Rome, definitely. Well, what do you think about all these? I don't know if any of the villages where you come from have done this, but what do you think of all these sort of like selling for one euro houses in Italy? It's a very popular thing they've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, my brother says that that's how I will end up because <laughs> I recently fell in love with Sardinia, with Sicily. Like I just, I went to Sicily, which is the island at the very bottom, let's say the tip of the boot. Uh, I went there for the first time two years ago and I fell in love with it because it's the best foods in Italy for me. I mean, Italy has this amazing uh, culinary um, heritage and every region has their own traditional dishes. But in Sicily, you have it all. Plus, you got so much history and the architecture and, you know, people are so hospitable and warm hearted. So I really fell in love with Sicily to the point that I've already been there three times in the past two years. And my brother is like, I think that you're going to buy for one euro one of these houses in these remote villages in the middle of nowhere. So I'm not excluding that as an option for me. Um, I know, you know, it, lo- it looks okay, but then, of course, you've got to do so much work. So, yes, you buy it for one euro, one pound, and then you have to spend like 100,000 to redo it. And because it's in, uh, let's call it medieval or anyway, old villages and hamlets, you need to respect specific building guidelines so it's even not that easy. Um, and then I have I have a friend who did it, and she said that the problem is during when you don't stay there. So, for example, she wants she's using it as a summer house. When you don't stay there, you have to be careful who goes in because then in Italy, if someone starts swat, uh, 
Swatting? Yeah. Squatting? If they start swatting in your swatting, is squatting. that a correct word? Uh, squatting, meaning squatting, that it's not squatting, your place sorry. and, and yeah, they yeah, come yeah, and yeah. just start living exactly. there? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then you can't throw them away. Like, it's something shocking, but if someone occupies your house, you then cannot... It's really difficult to let them, to make them go away. Really? And so they need, yeah. And so she's paying someone from the village to regularly go and check um, that nobody is going to be there because otherwise that's a problem. But it's not their house. I know. It's one of the absurdities in Italy. (laughs) People can, you know, occupy a, a place that is empty and then you as the owner cannot throw them away. Check squatting in Italy. It's it's absurd. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you could say it's absurd, but also like if, if people, if there was a system where people were respectful, it could actually be like a good thing for society too. Like instead of having to live on the street, maybe you can just occupy this home for a little while. But we all know like that those real world scenarios don't always play out the the way that they maybe should or could but it's an it's a nice thought well that's really interesting so if i if i need to squat i'm just going to like thumb it to italy and i'll be i'll be good to go yeah <laughs> that could be like a full circle moment for you if you end up living in a small village in italy just on the other side yeah it would be really fun you know like it's funny because I remember my father telling me when i was a teenager there's no place better than padernello which is the name of my village no place in the world. No place in the world. No. Like he was born there. He was always there. He was taking me around to find me a husband among the cow owners there. And I was like, you know, my sort of, my form of rebellion as the good girl was to travel. Uh, you know, so much my father was telling me just stay here. So much in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to travel the world just to go against what you say. And and after living, you know, 17 years in London and having visited a lot of countries, it would be so fun, even for me, to end up in an even smaller village than the one I come from. But let's see, I'm, I'm really open to everything. Um, I'm game. <laughs> you know, I say, universe, whatever you have in, you know, you have whatever you have set aside for me, I'm ready. Yeah. Well, I just need to, to understand it fully. That's a mindset I want to talk about with you today, of course, based on, you know, your book and, and the travels. You know, one of the things that I read in the book, or actually I was listening to it as well because there's an audio book now. Read by me. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned growing up in Northern Italy and that like, I'll just kind of paraphrase, but you were saying that, you know, you understood everyone's background. It was like, because you were all from the same place, you kind of could like have an understanding of their school experience and like what cartoons they grew up watching and, and so on. And it's so funny because it's just the world's such a fascinating place and how different people are, right? Like for your, for your father, who's been living there his whole life and everything. That's like, that's one of the big perks. Like everybody can kind of relate and we have this shared background and stuff like that. And that's one of the things that I love about going back to my home country is we have that shared background and stuff, but you were kind of seeing it from the other side as a travel. You're like, you know, I already like, we're all coming from the same thing. Like I want, I want to experience something different. I want to talk to different people that have had different backgrounds. It's not like it doesn't have to be one or the other, but I just found that an interesting perspective because that was one of the things that kind of sent you off. And, you know, you want to share with people what brought you to London? Why London? Because you went from, you know, a nice sunny area <laughs> to to a rainy kind of expensive city. <laughs> yeah. 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 So 
Well, I would like to dispel the myth that London is so rainy. I would say that London is grey. Because in fact, if you go and compare how much rain there is in a year, it's less than in Italy. So let, let's uh, oh, really? dispel okay. this, yeah. this false myth. Yeah, yeah but yeah. the grey, it might as well be It's rainy. definitely yeah. grey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there is definitely less sun than in Italy. Um, I visited London in 1998 for the first time because my elder brother had been living here for seven years. So I came here for 21 days and every single day I remember going out at eight o'clock in the morning, coming back at 10 p.m., having visited so much, having done so much. And I have always studied languages. I started studying English when I was eight years old. And the possibility of speaking English, English on a daily basis for me was so beautiful. And so I basically fell in love both with the city, with all the opportunities and possibilities, and with the fact of speaking English. And when I went to New York, for example, I was a bit afraid and I'm like, oh my God, if I'm going to like New York more than London, what happens with my life? I'm going to go very far from my family because anyway, I wanted a city where I could be home in two hours. Uh, and so London just seemed the, the best thing. And I felt in Europe, that's probably the city where things can happen easier, whatever it is, you know, that offers so many opportunities. And, and so that's it. That's how I decided to move here. I mean, I was, of course, unhappy with the job situation that I was having in Italy. And I had really lived in this sort of double situation. I remember driving to go to my workplace and thinking, wow, if I were in London, I would be taking the tube and I would see all these different faces. And here I am with my car, just driving around narrow lanes, surrounded by fields. I go and everybody is white, everybody is Catholic, everybody has watched the same cartoons and studied the same things. And I really wanted more. I wanted diversity. And yeah, as I, was, I was really doing, I was really living this double life, you know, going to a, to a cafe and thinking, oh, wow, if I go to a pub, there are all these different ages and people are doing all these sort of activities. Instead, here we come and we drink and we chat, but maybe at a pub they're playing darts or they're reading the newspaper. I was just, you know, constantly living my Italian thing and thinking what I could have been doing if I were in London. And in the end, I'm like, okay, this splitting is not particularly healthy. Let's go and see what's on the other side. Yeah, it is gratifying to fulfill a, a curiosity or a dream like that because you know even if you don't like it at least you know that right like instead of just sort of idealizing it you could have oh, come back you could have been like this this london lifestyle isn't for me after six months go somewhere else go back whatever but then at least you know you know i mean you were there for 17 years i guess so now you're a citizen I'll so it sounds here, like yeah. it, it I mean, worked yeah, yeah yeah um it works yes <laughs> I know some of the things you talked about in your book and, and a bit of, of uh, some of the things that went on in your life, but you know, we're talking to you here, so we're going we're gonna to dive into it. Is First of all, the, the idea of kind of trying to figure out what you're going to do next career-wise, there's like a messiness to that process. And I know you do coaching and stuff like that, and it sounds like you've had some of those experiences yourself in your own personal life. And I'm just bringing this up because I, I'm for anybody listening and and this is kind of for me too right now you know trying to figure out the next thing sometimes is hard it's hard to kind of you know and and fortunately it's it's a blessing that you have a lot of options and if you're somebody listening that you have a lot of options you know that 
that is certainly a blessing. It, it can also be a curse in the sense that it can be difficult to choose. So I was wondering just if you could speak to your personal experience about kind of searching for the next thing, if you're sort of dissatisfied with the thing you're doing, any advice around that messy process? <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're talking about when I felt unhappy with my job back in 2018, one of the reasons why I left for that three months trip. Yeah. So I was actually very happy with the jobs I was doing. I was working as an interpreter, um, specialized in Italian and English. I was working as a subtitler, so translating movies and TV series for Netflix and whatever, and a voiceover artist, which is super fun and you never know what's coming up. So I actually loved, I loved the variety. I had been freelancing for like 10 years, but I knew that I was called to do something else. I knew that I wanted to help people because that's always been my thing. You know, I've always been the Red Cross nurse helping helping people among my social circle. And I thought I would like to, to do something that is more useful to the world. And yes, I do subtitles for the hard of hearing. And yes, as an interpreter, I work in hospitals. So for Italians coming for some treatments in, in London, it's good to have someone helping them, someone like me that is uh, warm-hearted and sensitive. But I wanted to do it differently. And I, and I, was a ju- and I just didn't know in what capacity. And one of the things that happened for me during my three months trip was having a vision. I, when I was in Nepal, I did a um, Vipassana meditation retreat, which is a silent meditation retreat of 10 days. And on day eight or nine, and now I don't remember, I had what I can only call a vision because I was there meditating 12 hours a day with my eyes closed. And I saw a graffiti on a wall with written NLP. And I didn't even know what it meant. I thought... National Liberation Party. <laughs> like I've never been interested in uh, in politics, so I'm like, it's a bit strange that I'm getting this vision. And when I got my mobile back on day 10, I checked and I discovered it was neuro-linguistic programming. And I thought that this made perfect sense because I've always been into languages and communication and I've always been interested in psychology. So I knew that this was going to be my next step. And then when once back in London, I got informed about NLP, I discovered that it's a tool that you can use in life coaching. And I went to this free two days event about coaching and half an hour into it, I already knew that was going to be my next career move. So in my case, it came from an intuition, let's say, or when I was really connected with myself, because for eight days, I had just been there meditating, no Nothing coming from outside, no writing, no reading, no talking, no eye contact. So I was really in this space where I could properly get attuned with my soul. You know, I, I, would, I would really say this. So if I have to give an advice for people, it can either come in moments of deep silence. And for me, it really helps taking, um, taking a step back from the situation, Right. The fact of physically removing yourself from the situation that is the problem that you perceive as a problem can help you getting other perspectives, putting everything, you know, seeing it with different filters. And I would also say, ask for help, right? There are so many career coaches that can start from what what are your what's your skill set and what are your values and what you enjoy doing more. Um For sure, something that I would say is do not stay in a job for which you've got the mental vomit. Like, And by vent- mental vomit, I mean 
wake up every day drained of energy and feeling like life is so heavy because you have to spend 10 hours of your day doing something that you don't enjoy. Why are you doing that to yourself when there are so many options? It's fear generally. And you don't have to make choices based on fear, but you should make them out based on love. And so just, you know, think that you are here to, to do something better. Because, of course, if you love your job, you're going to do it better. So find that thing and get someone to help you in finding that thing if you're not able to, to understand it yourself. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. The meditation experience, I'm curious about that. Had, had you ever meditated before going for 10 days? And not, I mean, and when you say 12 hours a day, are you literally just sitting down with your eyes closed for 12 hours a day? That sounds really ten- intense. It also sounds like your butt would get really sore. <laughs> yes. So it was like, that was the most mind-blowing experience I have done until then. Then I've had another one. But until then, that has been the most intense and mind-blowing experience. So before that, I had only done a mindfulness course, which I guess was maybe 12 hours. So that's how much I had meditated in my life, 12 hours. But I had heard about these meditation retreats over and over when I was traveling. And I've always thought that they are a cool experience that you can do when you are in the zone. 
you know, when you're already detached from your normality and you can do something so extreme as this one. And yes, it's 12 hours a day. So the Vipassana meditation retreats have the same structure wherever you go in the world. They are free. You know, you're just uh, asked to leave a donation at the end. And they always follow the same um, structure. So you wake up at four with this big gong. At 4.30, you start meditating until 6.30. I hated this part because it was like there. They make you listen to these songs by... um, Oh my God, I don't even remember the name of the of the main representative. Anyway, <laughs> of Vipassana, people can check it. So we were listening to these songs in Sanskrit because Vipassana is the meditation, the original one by Buddha. So it still has the songs written by him and it's been passed down from one teacher to a disciple over the centuries. So that's in itself is mind-blowing. Then you have breakfast and then you start again at 8, from 8 to 11. At 11, you eat. And then from one to five, you meditate. You do, you do like one hour and then you can stand up five minutes and then you start again. At five, if I remember correctly, there is the dinner. But if it's already the second time you're doing it, there's no dinner, only a glass of uh, hot tea or lemon and water. So you're also required to eat very little. And then again, from six to nine, you, you go on meditating. And by 9.30, everybody's in bed. So, of course, you know, for me, like I wouldn't be, I, would, I wasn't able to meditate all those hours. You know, sometimes I was just, and especially not trained. So the mind keeps going to all sorts of places. But when I say that it was mind-blowing, it's because what happened was amazing. So basically, the principle of Vipassana is do not react to whatever you're feeling. Constantly doing body scans, becoming very aware of your body, because we the body keeps so much repressed energy and all the reactions that we've repressed during our life. So what they tell you is, if for 10 days you're not going to react to anything, if you have a fly walking on your, on your arm, don't throw it away. If you're cold, don't take another sweater. If you're hot, don't take it off. Just don't move. Just stay there. And you're not inserting anything new in your mind. You're not talking, you're not reading, you're not having eye contact with other people. So it's like, it's the same principle of fasting. If you don't introduce food, your body is going to eat your fat tissues. In the same way, if you're not having a reaction, your body is taking out all the reactions, all the energy stored during the years, all the reactions that you've repressed in your lifetime. And when I heard this, I'm like, this is science fiction. (laughs) It's not possible. And then on day eight, I woke up, even the dreams are particularly weird. I woke up dreaming. I mean, I knew that I had dreamt of my grandfather who died in 1986. And I went on crying for his death for eight hours. And I was thinking, how did a girl aged eight manage such a big grief? Like I probably never, never managed it. And so I was there 32 years later crying for my grandfather and and that loss. And it went on for two days, just this crying without knowing exactly what, but like, oh, it's stuff that is coming out. So it's unbelievable. And I did it twice. So the first time for me, there was a lot of sadness coming out. And the second time there was so much anger because I, I was in a period where I had had a fallout with a friend and there was so much anger that I hadn't really 
expressed. So, and for me, it's really a privilege, you know, having 10 days that you can spend completely detached from the world on your own. It's, um, it's something that I would recommend to anyone. Wow. Crazy. Did I convince you to do one? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It sounds very challenging and also very interesting for sure. I think I'd be up for that. Although, I'm I'm thinking about the schedule and just I'm I sort of was walking in your shoes through one day and I was thinking oh my gosh after that you got nine more days to go that sounds like I mean listen I'm a podcaster because I like to talk Roberta you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know what you know what I love to talk and I thought that this was going to be the toughest thing for me that the most difficult thing was not being allowed to you know because there were there were many cries. I cried a lot on day five. I'm like, what am I doing here? So, but that was a cry that I was, you know, I realized I'm like, I could have been going around Nepal, visiting these countries and I'm sitting here, what for? And like me, there were many women because women, I mean, we all meditate in the same room, but women on one side, men on the other. And you could see many women crying. And my Red Cross nurse instinct was to go and hug them or at least, at least, you know, tell them I'm here with you, sister. And I couldn't do that. No eye contact, no. So for me, this was the most difficult thing. And what's funny is that when I came out of it, I thought, wow, I just want to go and have fun and dance and talk. But for three, four days, you're in this bubble because you really realize how much of what we say is not necessary. <laughs> like, And I'm one who loves talking, but I think how much noise that we make, right? Like, honestly, there is... We could be talking way less than what we do. So that was an interesting, it, it, there, were, there were so many, so many takeaways from that experience, really. Hmm. I was at a retreat and had a similar experience in terms of people around me being upset and, and feeling this need to comfort them. And then, you know, I found that maybe this will sound selfish, but I, I, I don't think it is. I think it was just, there was a value also in that experience of understanding, well, there were people to take care of those people. I don't know if it was the same in in your case, but also we, we all have this inner wisdom and that maybe sometimes it's okay to let somebody go through the thing that you need to go through and you go through the thing you need to go through and you hold that space for yourself. And there's value in that too, in that realization, I think. And, and you know, if your tendency is to reach out and help, I think that's a good thing. But also there was value for me in being like, no, you know, this is, this is about my journey right now. Like I'm in my own journey and they're in their journey. And let's just, you know, cause sometimes, you know, being sensitive, I think I can take a lot of the energy around me on and, and take it personally, as opposed to just being like, all right, well, that's something somebody's going through right now. I, I don't need to let their energy affect me. And like, you know, it was just like sort of a lesson in, in, in that, like it was like a practice of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, what you say is very interesting because I, I never saw these, these nuance, but something that my trip gave me for three months, you know, like, as I said, I left that I've always been this fixer, the savior, the Red Cross nurse, traveling on my own for three months and asking myself daily, what do you want to do, Robbie? And how are, how are you going to give it to yourself? This really healed my people-pleasing pattern. Because, you know, to heal a pattern, you need to go to the, op- to the opposite. So if I was always putting the others first, putting myself first for three months, 
you know, once I came back, I felt, wow, I, I am able to see the person in need and tell myself that it's not my role. It's, it's not my role to make that person happy. I don't even have the tools. So it, it definitely helped. And I never, I never saw it also in the, in, the, in the meditation retreat. But yeah, what you point out is absolutely true. Learning to stay in your lane. Yeah, the metaphor, the the cliche travel metaphor of when the airplane is running out of oxygen, you have to put the mask on yourself first before you can help the other. It can be very true and applicable, which is, I guess, why it's such a cliche, popular cliche. You mentioned like a second mind blowing thing. What what was that? Can I ask you? Ah, no, no. The second mind blowing thing for me was the coaching institute that that I attended last year, and it was a nine months course, but it was. (laughs) <laughs> so intense every week I would you know like it, it required so much inner work so eh, I, I would have loved to keep a journal because it would have I would have published a book called The Coach in the Washing Machine because every week I was like you discover new stuff new layers there's always so much to work I received so on the one hand there were all the modules that we studied and then I also received a lot of coaching, like four or five hours a week, because it was 200 of us doing this course, all specialized in different things. Who is a breathwork coach? Who's a tantra coach? Who's specialized in working with the inner child? Who's a business coach? And because we needed to do, those who wanted to take the master coach qualification needed to do 300 hours practice, we were swapping hours. And I was like, oh my God, I've got the possibility to receive coaching by all these experts, I'm going for it. And so it was like, so much stuff, really. All the while having life happening, you know, like we go through so much in nine months, you got breakups with your partner, you can have a divorce, you can have friendships ending, and you still have to show up and show up and go deeper and deeper. So that's also for me has been a mind-blowing, mind-blowing for all the things that I've learned and I discovered of myself. Yeah. Wow. I want to think about self-development as a topic. There are so many ways to look at it, of course. And one of the things I think that's important to be aware of is, you know, you can go on the self-development track and just, it's like, could be like a constant, like it could be its own addiction, right? It's just like, you know, I got, I got to improve. Let me, let me learn this. Let me learn that. And jump to this coach and that. And I mean, I know you were in a special program, so I'm not relating it to that, but I'm just, you know, since it came up, I was just thinking about this and I want to get your thoughts because you're a coach and you've been coached and you've, you know, done work on yourself. Like I think we all have. And I feel like a healthy way to approach it is kind of like, I'm not showing up broken and something needs to be fixed. I'm showing up whole, but let me also work on some things too, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, Improve. And I think that's a healthy way to look at it, but you know, it's a tricky thing. You know, everybody's got their own sort of frameworks and perspectives and you're taking it all in. What does that look like for you or for who you teach? Yeah. What have you learned? Like for somebody listening is like, yeah, like I think a lot of us are in self-development. So I guess I'm fishing for a bit of uh, advice on how to kind of do that, but also just, you know, not make that like a full-time job and then and, and, and create like shame around it or things like that, you know? No, exactly. Exactly. So one thing I want to say is I really don't understand the stigmatization around coaches or psychologists. I mean, 
And uh, for example, I, I say this because in Italy, it's still really strong. People, pers- they're afraid of saying, yeah, they're afraid of saying, oh, you know, I'm going to the psychologist because they are afraid of being perceived as crazy. And right. I'm like, the crazy ones are those that think they don't have issues because we all have. So let's be honest and start improving, right? Yeah, because I'm like, if you have a bone broken, you would go to the osteopath. If you have problems with your heart, you go to the cardiologist. And if you see that there is something in the way you show up, in the way you think, in the way you communicate, that is constantly giving you the same problem, then talk with someone that can help you and that someone is a psychologist or a counselor. So I really don't understand why specialists in this sector are seen so differently than physical specialists that would deal with other things. It's I really like what you mentioned about the, it can become a sort of addiction, you know. I think it, it can become, especially for us who work in this sector, it's that you start loving the realizations and the discoveries and you just want to go deeper and deeper and you want to study more in order to make sure that you're offering clients whatever they need. Um, I would, you know, I would, I would start from the assumption that you cannot intervene in a world that you can't see. And unfortunately, I don't know if you are conversant with the iceberg theory that says that basically what we are aware of is only the tip of the iceberg, which is like four to two percent of the iceberg. The rest of the iceberg is all underwater. And this underwater represents what is unconscious for us. And what is unconscious must happen. Like you have no choice because it's unconscious. You can only choose differently when you bring stuff to your awareness, and so you see it, you, you, you know the pattern. So the work, because you don't see it and you think, uh, you know, and, and so many people say, but this is how I'm done. No, that's not how you're done. That You are the result of so much conditioning, programming, survival strategies, and you're not aware of it. So ask for support from people who have studied this, have walked this path. Maybe they are a few steps ahead of you and they can guide you. Um, Because I think that everybody could improve, whether it's in the way we communicate with our partner, whether it's, you know, in allowing ourselves to receive more. Because so many people have blockages, even in this. They think that they want something, but in fact, they would be so afraid or they don't even realize that they're blocking whatever it is that they would like to attract. Whether you want to align yourself. I love this word alignment, you know, so that what you think is what you say and what you do. And so many people think that they can't do that because, you know, they are doing a job that they don't like, while in fact they would like to do something else, but they have fears, so many fears. And, and so they make, cho- they make choices based on fear. While a coach can show you much more of what is possible, has a wider view, can change your filters, and in general can help you stretch yourself and support you in doing that. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but yeah, it, yeah. it's, um, I mean, there's no, uh, right. You know, I mean, it's just cool to hear your thoughts. I think it's, uh, yeah, a lot of that resonates with me. I think where the trap can be set is where you think you're going to reach some ideal perfection of self. No, that's no. just not, <laughs> you know, one thing that, no, no. And what I see is that there's always another layer always another layer underneath you know you think that you so it's a never-ending journey um and i'm not planning on reaching nirvana at all in this life but 
I really love to discover more and more how we reason, how something has affected my way of perceiving the world and has become the way I I see things through. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, there is so much, yeah, it's fascinating. And I think that there is so much unnecessary suffering and we, we should just work on ourselves and stop pointing the finger at others because it's always you and you. Once you work on yourself, you'll see that all the other relationships change. So that's another big thing. You know, we think that we always have to change the situation, but in fact, you just need to change the way you see things, the way you relate to yourself, build self-love, self-esteem, and things outside will change. Everything's changing all the time. That's the other thing. It's, it's we're changing, we're we're peeling new layers because we're also changing at the same time. We're, we're, we're not a static being. And then everyone around you is, is changing and aging. And then those dynamics are changing and people's lives are changing and change, change, change. It's just happening. Maybe this ties a bit in with this idea of letting go, which was in a way the crux of your trip. When I got the email about your book, one of the things that was said is, you were taking, quote, a radical new approach. If all our pain comes from unmet expectations, what would life be like if we planned nothing and surrendered any attachment to how things turned out? Sort of, in, in many ways, the premise of the trip itself, the backpacking trip for three months that you took through Asia, this idea of letting go and not planning anything. How did that go? Was that counterintuitive to your sort of, let's call it your regular daily life? Yes, exactly. Because both in London, I felt that my life was a game of Tetris, you know, making everything perfectly match. So I've got half an hour to spend on this work. And then I'm seeing this friend for coffee. And then, you know, it was everything so structured. And also in my previous trips, I was one organizing itineraries. I want to see this and this and this. So on Tuesday, I'm going to do this. So in that moment, I'm planning it. Yeah, I've always been the planner and the organizer. And for that trip, I'm like, okay. From everywhere, people tell me, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. That's why you're suffering so much. Because, you know, for, maybe for the listeners who, who don't know what my book is about, I was having this big crisis in 2018. It's been two years of being stuck and just looking at gray rather than at the beauties of life. And so like I a depression, to do you mean? Was it like a depression? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't diagnosed as depression, uh, but definitely I had been so so low crying. You were in a rut. You were in kind of this rut. I was in a rut and okay. I was stuck. I was stuck yeah. everywhere. Like on all fronts, things were not going as I had imagined my life to go. Um, and so I decided, I said, you know what? I need to go away. I know that traveling always recharges my batteries. And I just want to be on my own without all these people that whenever I see them or whatever they say are causing me pain. I just want to be on my own. And also understand once I'm so far from my everyday reality, what do I really feel towards these people or how do I really feel about this situation? And, and so I decided to use those three months to make an experiment. As you said, you know, if all my pain comes from unmet expectations, let's see how life can be when you don't have any. So I'm not going to plan anything, uh, which means that we will not have any attachment to how things will develop because I haven't really thought I would like things to happen in a specific way. Let's start from the assumption that how things happen is the best and only possible way. And let's see what happens. Let's see if really there is a God, if there is a universe, if it's true that we are loved. Let's see. Let's see what happens. 
And so Universe I Trust You, which is the title of the book, became my mantra for three days. I was like, okay, Universe, I trust you. Uh, Use me to make situations happen. Make me meet the people that you think should be useful for my growth or for whatever, or who are the best ones that I that I need to meet in this moment. So, you know, it's just starting from a completely different framework. Like, okay, I start from the assumption that I will be provided for and that the person that I'm meeting now is exactly the one that I should meet in this moment in my life. Maybe now I don't see why, I will understand it later. And in general, just know that if, you know, if the universe is loving you, then nothing bad can happen. I was fully living in trust. Yeah, it was an amazing experiment because this is what I discovered, that we are loved beyond imagination. And when you align yourself, which is, that's our part, align yourself, make sure that there is a a perfect correspondence between how you feel and what you do and what you say. And this energy is so strong that then naturally it's going to attract beautiful situations, beautiful things. Because I've been in this energy ever since I came back. And, and, you know, even what's happening now with my book is just beyond my imagination. And I'm like, this is just a result of doing my thing without worrying. You know, high intention, low attachment. Putting really your heart in what you're doing without necessarily thinking about what's going to happen next. Because I know that I'm doing my part. I'm taking actions aligned with my thinking and with my feeling. And I trust that the results will be the best ones that could come out. I love the mantra, by the way, universe, I trust you. That's quite beautiful and succinct. I always appreciate a nice short thing that, that means so much. So that's, that's really cool to hear the kind of that, that, that was the sort of the call to arms, if you will, for your, for your entire trip. How do you marry a philosophy like that with the practicalities of the real world? And, and I want to use like a specific example, but just to give people an idea of what I'm asking. So, you know, as a solo traveler, you can say, well, universe, let me meet whoever, but you know, that stranger might not be somebody safe to be around, for example, or, you know, there's, let's use the book example, because like, you can have the high intention of creating a piece of art that resonates and that can help people. But also there is the reality of like having to market something, otherwise nobody will read it and you won't make an impact. So there's like, you know what I mean? It's like you have the philosophical energetic framework of universe I trust you, but then you have the practical real world necessities in some ways. How does one bring those things together? Well, let's say that when you're traveling, it was much easier because not having plans, it was like, you know, maybe I wanted to spend the day on the beach and then someone at the hostel suggests, do you want to join us in going to this other trip? So there it's really a checking in. What do I want to do more? So, you know, trusting my intuition. Yes, trusting the universe, but also my intuition, because for me, it's really we are all connected. So once you understand that and like your intuition for me is kind of God's voice, if you want. So it's the truest thing that so rarely we tend to we tend to trust. So in that case, it was more maybe a checking in and seeing, yeah, why not? You know, like if, if there was no resistance, like, let's go, let's do it. And in the real world, you know, the one back from traveling, I like to say that the universe meets you at the crossroad between intention and action. It's not that you can just say, okay, I trust the universe. And then I stay at home sitting on my sofa, not doing anything. 
you need to take your baby steps in the direction of what you want to bring forth in this world. So yeah, definitely with the book, there's been a lot of marketing, but I would have never imagined that like in two weeks time, it's going to be projected on the Nasdaq billboard in Times Square. And this is completely beyond anything that I could have ever imagined for my book. There is, yes, the taking actions and and really never thinking that things could go wrong. That's something I like. I find it such a waste of energy when people say, yes, but what if? Yeah, but what if it does? 98% of people's fears never become true. And so many base their decisions on fear and just go past it. And if you have trust, it's easier to think about, okay, things will work out. And one of my other mantras is everything is always working out for me. Like by now it's become this unshakable belief that everything is always working out for me. Maybe something unpleasant can happen in the moment and I'll discover two years later that that had to happen because it was um, necessary for my growth, for my evolution, or because it brought this new person or this new skill in my life. So I, I just start from this assumption that there is this general good, uh, which is like the foundation of where we live. And that's the general destination where things would go if we just go with the flow if we don't oppose resistance, if we not get stuck, if we don't want to, you know, if we don't focus on fears rather than on possibilities. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks so they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. The mindset of the traveler in many ways is the foundation for the entire trip, which is kind of sounds funny because we don't have to go anywhere because our minds are right here. 
attached <laughs> right right in our our sphere here but you can imagine you walking down the street i mean i just got this visual of you walking down the street in nepal with this mantra and then let's say there's somebody else walking in tandem on the other side of the street parallel walking on the same street with the mindset of i'm scared i don't trust anybody here I, I'm going to be really careful all the time and, you know, or whatever, like some completely different mindset. And you're in the same place having two completely different experiences. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. humanity, right? I mean, everybody's having their own experience and, you know, for, tra- I mean, just bringing this back to travel, I, I, I think that this is a useful thought experiment to consider just talking to you and kind of, you know, what are the, intentions around the trip. And I mean, it's interesting because your intention to kind of not have things planned, but you're also creating the space for yourself to kind of explore self, explore your possible next directions and and things like that. There may have been some expectations going into the trip that at the end, other end of it, you would have some knowledge and learnings, but were those tempered because of the mantra and sort of the approach to the trip? I mean, I, I I knew, I took for granted that I would have come back very changed because three months is a lot of time. And when you're traveling, it's like you are dedicating your whole day to growth. You know, like the time that in your normal week, it's like, what? I don't know, a few hours to read or to listen to a podcast. There, you're constantly immersed in something new. So even simply talking with locals, your mind opens up so much. You see new opportunities. You see things from different perspectives. You're surrounded by new religions. And so it's so much, so much growth. And then, you know, you meet all these travelers and you have time to talk with them and see how many opportunities and possibilities are out there. So I took for granted that I would have come back changed. And I also thought, yeah, maybe in three times, so many things are going to happen that once I'm back in London, who will really care about the situation that I've left? Possibly. But I didn't see anything specific. I didn't think that I would have come back with a new idea for my career or that I would have discovered meditation. I didn't know the specifics of the trip. Again, I was just trusting that, of course, I would have come back feeling better because three months away is a big chunk of time. Um, and so that, that's what happened indeed. You went three months backpacking through Asia, but then the book is Universe I Trust You, a month in Sri Lanka. Why did you lock in yeah. on Sri Lanka to... Well, because I don't have the... I have many gifts, but not that of synthesis. So when I started writing about this trip, you know, I came back and I thought, people need to know what happens when you live in trust. And so I started writing the book and it took me two years to write the book. You know, it was time that I was taking away from my social life, working life, having many blockages and thinking, okay, those 100 people that know me will read it out of friendship. So I wrote 300 pages and I was still in Sri Lanka. And I thought, who's going to read the the book of an unknown, completely stranger, an unknown author, like a 1,000 pages book on her three-month trip? Like the only book that I know that was so successful is Shantaram, which is like 1,000 pages. It was the first book he wrote. Amazing. So I thought, you know what? The message comes through anyway, let me stop in Sri Lanka. What I didn't expect is that the Italian readers, because the book first came out in Italian, then started asking me, no, we need to know what happens in the second month. So I'm actually writing the the second book, One Month in India, because yeah, I enjoyed writing it and I enjoyed the whole process of 
I was about to say a marketing. I mean, I enjoyed all the book presentations and the people that he brought into my life. Marketing is tough, but uh, I'm enjoying all the process. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to write the second book too. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, another one of those unknowns. You didn't know you were creating a mini series here, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A trilogy <laughs> because, you know, if I, write the, if I write the second one, then I would have also to write the third one. But let's see about that because it's a long process. I also translated it in English. And there was an interesting process in itself because my jokes, eight jokes out of 10 are politically incorrect because <laughs> I'm very irreverent in Italian. I mean, I'm very irreverent as a person and the sense of humor in Italy is so different from the English one, right? And so I hired an editor to tell me, apart from checking my language, because yeah, I speak good English, but not to a native speaker, to a native level speaker. But also I'm like, tell me, the cultural differences where I should be more aware. And there were so many things that she asked me to tone down, remove. This is not really. Uh, so, you know, it was an interesting an interesting process for me as a translator, as a background. It, it's, it's just fascinating to see how the two books differ. I would say, well, not in, not in the gist, but there are quite a few things that are different. And for me, of course, the Italian one is way funnier. That's why it was even more amazing coming second place with the English version at the Bookfest Awards. I was like totally not expecting this. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Let's talk about solo travel in Asia. You were there on your own. You mentioned some of the places you went. Talk about the experience of solo travel. And of course, we we know the sort of the, the philosophical framework you were traveling under, but as the solo travel experience for you, uh, you know, practical advice and logistics and also the experience. I mean, feel free to talk about anything here related to solo travel through this region. I'd love to hear some of the places you went and yeah, what, what you learned from yeah. that experience of traveling on your own. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of solo traveling in my life and it started as making a virtue out of necessity because as a freelancer, I could take my holidays whenever I wanted and for how long I wanted. And I didn't have many friends in my same position. So it was difficult for people to come for the same amount of time that I was staying away. And I had been single for eight years. So, so I've, I've traveled quite a lot on my own in Asia. I think it's one of the easiest places where you can travel as a solo female um, it's easy to organize things, transports work quite well. And so, yes, I made a necessity, I made a virtue out of necessity, but nowadays I really think that solo traveling gives you so much more than if you're traveling as a couple or with friends. Um, and one of the reasons why I, one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was also to inspire more Italian women to travel on their own because we don't have a backpacking culture. So when I was telling, oh, you know, I traveled on my own for three months, they were all shocked and it, and they were always putting me five questions. Was it safe as a woman? Didn't you get bored? Didn't you get lonely? How much did you spend? And weren't you afraid? I answer all those questions, please. We, we got we got to hear the answers to those questions. <laughs> if those are the five most common questions, let, lay it on us. <laughs> so was it safe as a woman? Totally. Like what with the, with the religion that they have there? What with the fact that 
I mean, in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka was particular because honestly, I worked, I've traveled in all the Southeast Asia, but I've never met men who were so relentless <laughs> in trying to pick you up. So that, but it was never dangerous. It was more like, oh my God, I don't have the energies to fend off all these, all these attempts, right? Like it was all this curting and flirting and like, oh, that's too much. But, you know, in, in the other countries, uh, the situation is way different. For example, in India, they, they almost look at you as a goddess because you're white and because you belong to another culture, but they don't really think that there can something happen in between you two. You know, they still also, I've traveled a lot in rural India. So there's always this, yeah, there's sort of admiration for you. In my case, probably also because I'm tall and I have short hair. So, you know, very different from, from the ladies and very fair skinned. So there was always this curiosity and admiration, but never really thinking that they could try it with you. So Sri Lanka was really particular in this. But so to answer the first question, yes, it is safe. Like nothing ever happened to me in all the times that I traveled, while in fact I've been attacked in London and I've got something happening also in Italy. So I would say it's way more uh, safe than, than my mod, my than where you world. live. Exactly. And then uh, didn't you get bored? No, never. Because every morning I just have... It depends what relationship you have with yourself. Like, I don't know what boredom is. I always have so many things I would like to do, even simply writing my journal or reading a book. So it's a constant asking, what do you want to do? So I never got bored. Was it lonely? You know, I tend to stay in hostels because I know that it's the easiest way to meet other backpackers. And when you're alone, it's so much easier to join people for dinner, join um, tours, whatever. And for sure, there have been situations, I also describe it in the book, where maybe, you know, in the evening, I'm walking on the, on the beach and there are all these couples enjoying the starry sky and talking. And I felt like, ah, it would have been nice to have someone to share it with. But then, for example, the day after, I had someone to share it with, you know. So it's, um, I wouldn't say that I felt lonely, not at all. Uh, there, there can be sporadic in events, but not as a general baseline. Again, it depends on how you are. Was it expensive? Oh, my God. We are talking about Asia. So in India, you eat with 40 cents. I stayed in hostels where with $2, I had my bed, with breakfast included. In three months that I was traveling, so I did one month in Sri Lanka, one month in India, one month in Nepal, I spent a total of £1,300, flights included. So definitely, you know, people tend to use money as an excuse not to travel, but it's just, uh, and of course, it's different. You know, as I said earlier, Italy is so more expensive. I'm about to go to New York and I'm shocked by the prices. <laughs> but, you know, there are parts of the world where you can travel with really little money. And yeah, and solo and solo traveling for me just makes you see how many resources you really have. Um, it's you and you constantly, and you're stretching yourself in so many ways. So for me, it's really a deep dive into getting to know yourself and seeing all the things that lay dormant in your everyday life, because there's no need to, to see how would you approach uh, a street seller or how would you approach, you know, like, there are so many situations that do not belong to your normality. So it's a constantly seeing how would I behave in this situation or what do I think related to this thing that I, I've never even considered before. 
Yeah. So it was a constant knowledge. Mm. Mm. You know, anybody listening or the people that were coming from the street and asking those questions, it's it's like one one of the other answers I would say as a solo traveler is like, is it bad if you're bored or if you're lonely? Like maybe those are things to to face. Maybe we shouldn't be entertained 24-7, you know? <laughs> I think it's a good thing to face some boredom, face some loneliness. And if you travel long enough on your own, I think that could happen and can happen. As you mentioned, it can be in spurts. And like, is that a bad thing? It's funny when, I mean, I think that comes up as a question, like it's a bad thing. It's a very good, it's a very good point of view, actually. I A lot of creativity happens in boredom. Like you got to do something. So let me write, let me, you know, go out into the world. I mean, there's a lot of benefits. Yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't call that boredom, you know, for me, those are like empty spaces that you feel with writing or reading. Um, I, I don't necessarily see that as a fruit of being bored, but at the same time, as you say, there, there is a positive side to boredom um, because it's going to eventually bring you to put yourself some questions. Why am I not feeling complete on my own? Why do I constantly need something from the, from the outside? How can I use this time? So I guess that there is a, a plethora of good things in uh, boredom. Yeah. <laughs> Destinations. Some of the you want to share one or two of the places you went that you really loved that you would recommend to other travelers or solo travelers. Yeah, well, I'm in love with India. I've been there already four times and for quite long. Well, almost three weeks to four weeks every time. And India for me is like stepping into one of those pop-up books for children where there are all these colors and strange things coming out and India for me it's a it's an assault to the senses as in colors are brighter the smells are more intense there's always so many people around you um you never know you really you would really need an interpreter sometimes to explain you why people are behaving in that way because it's such a different culture from ours that I remember over and over interpreting a situation based on my Western parameters. And then in India would explain, but no, she's not waiting for the bus. She's waiting for the, for the fish market, a fish market that is nowhere to be seen. And that lady had been sitting there for 10 hours because for them, time doesn't remotely have the, you know, the importance that we attach it to. It's completely different. So India for me is, but India is a country that can be brutal. And, you know, it's really like there is this slogan regarding Marmite in England, either you love it or you hate it. And I think that that could apply to India as well. Like you cannot stay indifferent to India. It's either you love it or for the same reasons you're going to hate it because it's um, such a compassionate country and so spiritual, but it can also be so brutal and heavy. And yeah, so it's a country of contrasts and I love it. And then another another country that I loved was Turkey. I visited it with my mom and my brother, and it was the only trip that we did, the three of us. So probably it's also connected to the memory that I have of the trip. But I, I love Turkey. It was so easy to move around, beautiful landscapes, amazing food. The people were always so helpful and hospitable, so like he- helping a lot. So yeah, Turkey is another thing that I would suggest. Nice. And Sicily, of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier. You definitely piqued my curiosity on Sicily. 
the book started off with a, a bit of a dialogue around the importance of vulnerability. And I was just wondering if you would talk about that for a bit. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I it took me two years to to finish the book is really thinking how much I should share. Because my one of my top values is honesty and transparency. And the book is my travel journal. Because uh, in my life, I've always just written travel journals. So when it came to, to write a book, I thought, I'm not sure I can write a book. And also the point is to show people what happens in such a trip, because so many of them are worried about leaving. So let me tell them day by day what happens. And of course, I thought, you know, I come from a small village, 2,000 inhabitants. The book first came out in, in Italian. So my parents, all the people that know me would have read it, how much they want to share about my life. And also I talk about a very difficult situation with my best friend. And so there was this constant, he didn't want, he didn't want me to disclose that part. And I was like, I want to tell my side of the story. So this is, I'm still in, in control of my, how I lived the addiction that it turned out he had and that caused so much pain in, our, in my life back then. And I th- see straight from the beginning, I say that vulnerability for me is a superpower. And in fact, most of the comments of readers who reached out to me in social media is really, thank you for being so open because you made me see that what I'm going through is not so bad, as in you've gone through the same. So in a way, it normalizes people's pain. And I think that vulnerability, vulnerability is a superpower because I'm telling you, this thing that makes me suffer, I don't hide it because when you hide it, that's when you develop shame. That, that's when they become a monster. That's when secrets become this, oh my God, I can't talk about it. And it becomes like a burden that people are carrying with them. If you were just being open, knowing that we are humans, we all go through rough patches. And so I'm telling you the thing that made me suffer more. And at the same time, because I'm telling you, it means that I'm okay with it. You cannot even use it against me. So many people are afraid to open up because they say, oh, what if then people use this against me? Well, A, that's a sign that you shouldn't be dealing with those people. (laughs) And B, like, be so concerned about your own life. To me, it it requires more energy to hide stuff rather than opening it. So once you're centered and you know why you want to share, honestly, what other people say loses so much importance. And also for me, vulnerability is what builds a bridge and makes my pain useful because what I've gone through can become useful. It can be a useful example to people or they know that I can understand them. They know that they can relate to me about that specific topic. They know, oh, wow, this worked for her. So that's a way that I could, you know, that's something that I could try myself. So it really gives some meaning to what people go through and it can be inspiring. Because after, you know, what I'm showing with the book is that the biggest crisis in my life became the springboard for amazing new chapters, a whole new career, incredible events connected with this book. Uh, And I I had nothing, like I never thought when I was writing my travel journal, Traveling, that I would, that it would have become a book. Like I, I didn't have that idea. It just came afterwards. Very cool. Well, congratulations on it. Universe, I trust you. A month in Sri Lanka will link up to everything. And 
you mentioned winning second place at the Book Fest Awards. Congratulations. So, of course, we have that book. And I also heard when I got the email that the journey through Asia was you had some books along with you as well. I was just curious, like outside of your book, and you've sounds like you've done a lot of reading, listening, like resources, books. It's always nice to get other sort of things that, yeah, if you could recommend a couple. Back then, I had just started my spiritual journey, let's say, and I had taken with me a book called All in the Mind. For me, it, it still remains a good book because it 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 puts together so many things. There was NLP, there was mindfulness, there was meditation, um, there was mindset work. So for someone who was a beginner like me, that was good. Uh, it helped me. And then it was basically that it was up to the universe because I was leaving that book and taking whatever I fancied out of the ones in the hostel. So, for example, when I did... Um, when I did the volunteering in the elephant sanctuary in uh, Sri Lanka, there were so many books related to elephants. And elephants have always been my favorite animals. So I remember reading a story of this cowboy who was the guy who was in the Marlboro Country adverts back in the 80s. So I remember him, him being a cowboy. And uh, he raised this elephant that he saved from a circus. So there's the story of him and this elephant in the ranch. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the title, but I remember I remember the the cover was so nice to see this elephant in in an American ranch. So no, I didn't carry many books with me because I had a backpack, right? Thirteen kilos, so I had to be careful. I had my Sri Lankan, Indian, and Nepal Lonely Planet guides because they're always my bible when I travel. Uh, and I love paper and they were quite heavy. And so it was just one book I left with. And then I was leaving that and see what took my fancy in the different places where I was staying. You were living true to your philosophy, like universe, I trust you. Exactly. Give me, give me my next book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right. One more, then I'll let you go because you've been in London for 17 years. What are the top two or three things you have to do if you're visiting London? Very popular city to visit and wonderful place to visit. Oh my God! I mean, apart from all the apart from all the uh, monuments that there are, I love going to markets. So I, it's really something that I enjoy, and so I would totally recommend both the Camden Town one and the Shoreditch one, uh, the Spitalfields one. Sorry, uh, they're very different. Uh, Camden is quite commercial. Um, Spitalfields is more into unique things from designers, from people who just do their thing. So it's independent uh, stores. And I love watching the sunset from, from, because London is such a green city, people don't realize, but there are so many parks and they are all beautiful and all different. So maybe that's something that I would suggest, go and explore London parks because you've got deers in Richmond, you've got a view from the top of a hill in Primrose Hill and Hyde Park is so flat and Hampstead Heath is like a forest. So they're all different. Explore London parks, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, the Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square over the holidays is given to, to them by Norway. It's a Norwegian tree. Ah, I didn't know that. As a thank you from 
the World War II days, I think, ah. some kind of collaboration. So it's a it's a gift that's been going on for many years, I think, which is kind of cool. Uh, and I live in I live in Norway, so that's my connection. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, in Oslo, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time. I, I would love if you would like to share any more about what you do, websites, whatever, and yeah. Mm. So as I said, after the, the the trip was a work as a watershed in my life because a I wrote this book without thinking that it was going to particularly affect my life, but in fact it's been out in Italian, out in English, um, and I'm writing the second book. So to my own surprise, I became a published author and even more an award winning author now, um, and. I took first the certificate as life coach, then as an NLP practitioner, and now I also have the qualification as a master life coach. And I help, especially women, because my book is dedicated to women who feel stuck or who are awakening. So I help especially women, but not necessarily only, people who feel stuck, who are not living an allied life. And I concentrate on self-mastery, so realizing that everything depends on you, Emotional well-being, emotional awareness, and alignment in general. Yeah, I really like that word, alignment. So helping people to live more of the life that they would like to, overcome their fears, learn how to relate better to themselves and therefore to others. So that's what I do nowadays. Beautiful. We'll link up to the website and, and and the book. Any words of parting words of wisdom before we let you go? Yeah, I love to repeat this sentence that I say often in my book, choices have to be made out of love, not out of fear. So when people, you know, when you realize that you're making a choice based on fear, that's the wrong one. That's not what your soul is telling you to do. And you're just going to develop resentment, frustration in the long run. It, it doesn't work. So, you know, choose out of love and trust. And it's, it's worked wonders for me so far. And, and I absolutely believe that this is the way forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. There you have it. Thank you very much once again to Roberta for stopping by the show. Congrats to her and the book, Universe I Trust You. We linked to all of it in the show notes here as well as my voicemail box if you want to get in touch and my email, jason at zero to travel.com. I do want to invite you to reach out if you haven't done so. This is a two-way conversation. Just take a moment here to say thank you to you for being a listener, for being a part of this community. We've got a free newsletter over at zero to travel.com slash newsletter if you want to join the community over there as well off the podcast. Okay, a couple things. I'm going to leave you with a quote in a second. First, going way back to the beginning when Roberta used the word experiment during the clip that I shared right at the top of the show. This was an experiment to her. She wasn't saying, I'm going to live my life like this forever. She was trying out this idea of just trusting the universe in this way and approaching life with this philosophy that you heard in the show. And that is the challenge, the idea, the concept I wanted to throw out to you today, something we can all do today, tomorrow, or on our next trip We can experiment with a life philosophy. We can just wake up and say, today, just for this one day, I'm going to live my life with this mindset, and I'm going to live my life by making decisions through X, Y, or Z filter. Whatever that means to you, you can decide what that philosophy is. And 
it might just change the way we interact with people, might change the way we see the world. What if I was a more joyous person today? How would that look? What if I was lighter? Maybe, maybe less, less worried, less stressed. What if I lived my life in a stress-free way just for this one day? What would that look like? How would I go into the world today? How would that change the things I read, the things I do? I don't know. That's why it's called an experiment, right? So if you're looking for some actionable thing to take away from this conversation you've invested your time into, there you go. Experiment with some kind of new life philosophy, whatever that means to you for a day, and just see how it goes. Let me know how it goes if you feel so inclined. I just wanted to throw that out there as an idea. And I'm going to leave you with a quote on expectation, which was another big topic, big theme in this show. This one from Sri Chinmi, who said, peace begins when expectation ends. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. Have a great day. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 